podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We've got a late night recording here with uh, sort of kind of my former boss, but more importantly, he's a, he's a grandmaster of chess. He is a former U.S. Open champion. He's been a top 100 player in the world. He's also a lawyer. He's writing a lot about chess. He writes for U.S. Chess Online, American Chess Magazine. In the past, he did the Game of the Month Club. I mean, not club, the Game of the Month uh, column for uh, U.S. CF's Chess Life magazine. And of course, he is a chess teacher. So GM Michael Rode, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for the introduction, Ben. Oh, my pleasure. And I know that um, you you were just saying before we recorded how you didn't have like brand new material to hawk or things to discuss. But as I was telling you, you know, you're like an American chess legend. You You know, you've been playing actively for all these years you've seen every player like you know come and go and rise to the top and uh been in the center of it all in new york so i don't think you need anything new and i'm excited to hear your perspective i was just looking at your uh your player your player card on uh on uscf on your rating card and you've already you've played four tournaments in october alone so for that alone i feel like you're one of in addition to being, of course, super strong with varied experience, you're you're one of the busiest players we've had. So, so how's your chess going, Mike? Well, well, actually, it's been a rough year. But let me let me just backtrack a second because when you called me uh, a former boss, <laughs> yeah, that that no, that's um, the, the funny thing about all that is that uh, most people or nearly everybody who is uh, let's say a former teacher who who worked in the schools uh, in New York uh, with Sophia and me. Well, well, we might say maybe Sophia was your boss, maybe not me, but um, most of our former, or let's say, well, I don't know, probably all of our former teachers all went on to really great success one way or the other in various different things. So, so we had a, a, you know a great uh, crew of people. A lot of different people. Uh, you came in for a little while, um, and you know I'm glad to see what you're doing. But the point is that uh, every time I think about people who, who, you know, who maybe I might have written a letter of recommendation for, or went on to something else, they all went on to tremendous things. Um, so that's that's just something that just struck me when when you said that. I, I you know, um, but let's get back to how I'm playing, which is. Let's just say not very well. <laughs> um, I want to backtrack to the summer where I deliberately played in a lot of tournaments, kind of went to a lot of different places. Uh, I had some, you know, success. I went to the National Seniors. It was the first time I went to a seniors tournament. Um, I started noticing, irrespective of all that, that people, when I do do well, they're sort of, when they send me compliments, it's always a mixed compliment because they're always referring <laughs> to my age somehow, and I'm I'm not even thinking about that most of the time. And that I even stayed out of the senior tournaments for a few years when I was eligible, so as not to categorize myself in that way. 
But this was just too nice a tournament, the National Senior Tournament that I went to in the summer that was at the U.S. Open. Uh, so I went to a bunch of tournaments. And in October, um, you know, I, I try to write articles when I go to tournaments. So uh, I went to the Chess Sanity Invitational. Chess Sanity is a, a sort of a new uh, organization out on Long Island. They have little, in this case it was very small, six-player Invitational. I actually wrote a art, little article about it that appeared on Chess Life Online. Um, so I did okay. So some of the, I, I like to find good spots like that. Um, and then I play at the Marshall a lot, you know, but again, when you mentioned the active, uh, active, belo- that title belongs to Jay, Jay Bonin. So I can't, I can't compete with that. Well, yeah, and no, even, no one um, can compete with Jay in that regard. Yeah. No one can compete with him. And, and even week by week, it's impossible to compete with him. So I'm not even really, so if there's a second place in the activity thing, you know, recently, I don't know. I don't know who gets it. Okay. So for listeners from out of the country who may not have heard of Jay Bonin, I know I'm guessing everyone in the U.S. has, but he's a New York legend, international master, plays more than anyone. I think something like a thousand rated games a year. Does that sound plausible? I think I, I think yeah. I remember reading that somewhere. And he wrote a book called Active Pieces that you guys should check out. So, but yeah, I mean, no one can compare themselves to Jay in terms of activity and, and staying sharp and able to win any tournament. But still, I mean, we have a lot of people who aspire to play a lot, but not all of us can pull it off or do pull it off. Yeah, I, actually, you know, I, when, when you said I played four tournaments in October, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's accurate, but I'm actually playing, a, well, in the fall, you know, I play a little bit less because the uh, teaching revs back up, and the summer tends to have, you know, the big, bigger open tournaments, you know, um, sort of destination places and stuff. So in the fall or actually winter, spring, I, I do play a lot. I play a lot of, you know, smaller tournaments. Um, but, um, you know, it, 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 there's a different feel to it. Uh, the summer is when you feel like all the chess professionals are out there traveling. Uh, and it's pretty exciting to see, you know, who's going to uh, do well in all these different things. So I have a couple follow-ups on that, Mike. Number one, is there, I mean, I, I read about some people that you've mentioned, but is there anyone that leaps to mind in terms of people who, who've caught your eye, players that uh, seem to be making a push or that you feel are underrated or like young talents that you're seeing uh, repeatedly on this yeah. coming off the summer circuit? Right. Uh, well, so first of all, there's, there, there's more young talents, you know, now than ever before. So it's very hard to, there's so many, you know, stars out there, legitimate ones, that it's almost you know crazy in that sense. Now, if we talk about people that are let's say you know peers of mine, then it's it's a question of you know who, who is concentrating on chess and who is deciding to do something slightly different and perhaps not concentrating on their tournament performance. Um, and then I have to also come to terms with the fact that some of these players you know have always been better than me. Um, so it's not a question of whether you know they're studying now and, and, and I'm doing something else or, or anything like that. So, um, but we, one gets the sense that you know some players are are really you know pushing forward and some players aren't. And and I guess without really thinking too specifically about this, I think that most players uh, of my generation are not really playing a lot of tournaments. Um, and and. So who would you consider of your generation? Like who comes to mind first? Well, there, there's so many classic players. I'm, I, I mean, Fedorovich, 
uh, doesn't seem to play in a lot of tournaments at all. I know he went to Canada because he enjoys going, you know, to the Opens up there, you know, in July. Uh, I, I knew he was going to go there. I was actually maybe planning to go with him, but I, I didn't make it. It conflicted with a couple other things. Um, other than that, I, I don't know um, how much he plays. It's always stunned me when he had opportunities down in Greenwich Village uh, and he wasn't going to the Marshalls so much, and I was going there practically all the time sometimes. But, I mean, I know, I know he's very busy with teaching also, you know. I just think about him because, uh, you know, I've known him for so long. We're both from Jersey. And, and then there's Joel. Uh, Joel's doing a tremendous uh, amount of stuff with, uh, he got his new book out there, I know. And, you know, he's yeah. uh, this got is videos. Joel, Joel, Joel Benjamin. Benjamin. Yeah, so he doesn't seem to play a lot. But I know he went to the, um, the reason I think about this is because he, I know, you know, he went to the World Senior, you know, I went to the National Senior at the U.S. Open but he went to the World Senior along with uh, you know four other selected players in Germany uh, in the summer, and of course they brought home the gold medal, and Joel got an individual gold there. So that was quite good, even though I, I don't think he's playing that many other tournaments. So I could think of lots of other players in the, uh, of that generation that I also don't think are are playing that much um, in terms of uh, you know American grandmasters, um, you know. So so. So often when I go to tournaments, I, I actually play a lot of young people in tournaments. It used to be the case I would go, let's say, to the Marshall Chess Club in New York City and actually end up sometimes playing against people who were my own students. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a significant you know, experience and rating disparity there, and it would be quite shocking if I, in those days, let's just a few years ago, whenever that was, or let's say for many years, I would always win practically, but but now one has to get used to losing to young players occasionally. And, and now I'm not even talking about my own students. I'm just talking about kids who have just gotten to be so incredibly good that it's it's no big deal if, they, if their rating is that high. And you know, if you lose them, it's not like losing to a kid. It's just like losing to a senior master or an IM or or whatever they are. And uh, you know, it's just normal um, at this point. So I, I remember seeing an article uh, that Robert Hess wrote in Chess Life a couple of months ago. It was a very, very complimentary article about Brandon Jacobson. I actually saw the game. It was, it was at the New York International uh, in June. And, and Brandon, well, it was a tough game, but Brandon eventually won a convincing game. And Robert, in the article, was extremely gracious uh, as to Brandon's strength. I mean, everyone knows Brandon's really incredibly strong. Uh, I played Brandon in the World Open. Um, he actually he actually played a—I was white. He played a Queen's Indian that I had recently—same line that I had recently convincingly beat him in a blitz tournament. But he just played this exact same line against me in one of the later rounds in the World Open, and I— you know, overconfidently went into the same variation. He had a lot of activity. He was pressing me the whole way. Eventually, around move 39 or 40, I think at the time control, I, I could have played a, something that would have convincingly given me no problem, but I missed it. And then he played the end game. He, he beat me in the end game. Once that happened, you know, it's so it, it's. So, can uh, I stop you there for a second, Mike? Yeah, sure. So, take us through the psychology of that. You're, you know, you're. I know that you're a little disappointed that your rating isn't quite at its peak, but obviously, like for our listeners, you're an extremely strong player and you play another one and you've had an opening recently. So when he starts to go into the same opening, how do you sort of um, 
how do you parse the psychology of how likely is it that he has something you know cooked up uh versus him just uh being willing to go into it like like right. how do you decide if you you're just going to go down the exact same road exactly well First of all, when we know we're playing a very talented, strong player, then everything has to be um, dissected in terms of what what's where real you know where are we with this guy? We know he's good. We have respect for him. I just want to preface that whole thing by saying that you know because I've played relatively a lot of games, I sometimes like the, just to take off for a second here, like I played. Sometimes in the in the Nassau Chess Club Championship on Long Island, so I I go out there like once a year. So I played out there. Somebody played some kind of. Um, I used to be an expert in the thing called the Lisitzen Gambit. Like even John Donaldson said, you know, don't play this against Road. He he knows this stuff. You know, so basically the Lisitzen Gambit. Most people don't know what it is. It's white plays Knight F3, black plays the Dutch F5, and white just plays E4. So I just made a habit of playing that because. I think Donaldson complimented me on it. I just started playing it. So I, so somebody, I, I go out there, I play it against somebody. Somebody knows a lot of theory about it. I get into a position where White really has to sacrifice a piece. I sack the piece against him, and uh, it was kind of unclear. Maybe I was even didn't like my position for a while, but I eventually win. Okay, I don't really go out to Nassau for a whole year. Go back out there. End up playing the same guy. And I don't really remember. I don't even remember that I played the Lissitzen against him the year before. I just played the exact same thing against this guy again. And basically around move 10 or 11 or something, he plays an improved version of this thing where I still have to sacrifice the piece. And now I realize I, I just am completely not showing enough respect to my opponents. I can't remember this guy, and I'm in the exact same position, only it's worse. Um... I do think you, I still I think I still won. You what's know. he what's he rated approximately? Do you, well, twenty two hundred. I think twenty two hundred. Okay. Twenty two hundred strength. You know, maybe he was a little bit, you know, rated lower than that, but effectively twenty two hundred type strength. And so that kind of thing happens once in a while. I I run into these guys with their pet variations. On the other hand, sometimes I deliberately head right into someone's variation just for fun or because I don't think it's very good. Um, and sometimes they will repeat a bad variation against me. Um, and, they, and, you know, then it's just kind of comical in reverse where I really do have control of the situation. But I, I realize that sometimes people might remember their game against me more than I remember them. So I have to be a little more careful with these openings. So let's, let's catch us up to what happened with Brandon. Um, so... First of all, about the blitz tournaments. Um, you know, the marshal has blitz tournaments really twice a month, but once a month is their FIDE blitz, which kind of is just somehow more, you know, just a bigger thing or more guaranteed prizes or something. I never really do that well in the blitz tournaments. There's just too many players like Lenderman or Delugi or people like that who are just going to, um, you know, they're, they're stronger than me at Blitz, I'm not to mention whatever with regular chess. Obviously, Lenderman's one of the top 100 in the world, or virtually so, uh, you know, with his rating. But the Blitz tournaments, of course, are fun. Uh, and I often get good positions, even against the very best players. So I think in this tournament, I had knocked off a couple of really, really good players. 
you know, I was doing fairly well. You know, not really necessarily winning, but in the running for something or other. And I ended up playing Brandon, and he played the Queen's Indian, uh, kind of one of these provocative defenses where he lets uh, White sort of get the D5 push against the Queen's Indian. Um, so, uh, so it's risky for black, let's say. And I played a really nice game against him and got all the activity that white's supposed to get there. And I won that game. Okay. So then at the world open, I probably like around seven or eight in the world open. Well, no, maybe this is at the U S masters actually now that I'm talking about it. Yeah. This game I'm now talking about is at the U S masters in August this year. So, um, same opening, and somehow um, I overlooked a couple of things, it seems like, and he just got a lot of activity. Um, if you can imagine a black light-squared bishop on b7, the queen's Indian bishop getting snuffed out by my pawn on d5, but then he plays knight a6, knight c5, and the bishop on b7 gets to a6, and now suddenly he's crawling all over me with the minor <laughs> pieces, and also, there were no minor pieces exchanged, so we each had four minor pieces. So a lot of minor pieces just flying around. And it was a very, you know, sort of dicey position for me. Um, I managed to play pretty well, and the end result of all of this is that all he could get out of it was he actually managed to grab a pawn at some point. But then he didn't, but then his initiative was gone, and I was okay, and I had some play against his king position, enough to um, get to, let's just call it theoretical equality, where he couldn't do anything because he was still a pawn up, but my pieces were active. But I just didn't play it quite right, and then he extricated himself, and in the end game, I just got totally smashed. So, I, you know, I don't know, there was no psychology about the later part of the game, but the opening, I was not very careful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and go, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, but I mean, I remember in that tournament in the U.S. Masters, um, I remember sort of discussing. Uh, Joel Benjamin was there. Um, we discussed at some point in the tournament that I, I was just taking risks. And I played a lot of good players in that tournament. I played up to some of the highest rated players in the tournament. I played Jeffrey Zhang in round. Uh, very early in the tournament, for some reason, I think he had one and one because he lost in round two, and I had one-on-one I had drawn two. I was paired up against two really good guys, drew both of them, and Jeffrey had lost his second round game. So I played him in round three. Okay, he he beat me eventually. Um, But I played, like, all good players, and I was starting to take risks. Uh, I was um, making, you know, pawn sacrifices in the Catalan as white, even though I didn't really know it that well. I was just kind of throwing a lot of pieces around and, just saying to myself, this is going to be... I, I wasn't really in the running for anything, but I was playing like that. And so by the time I got to play Brandon, I had kind of forgotten to slow down a little bit and, and think about this. Hmm. Um, so that's that's what happened there. And what about if you play... So you mentioned Jay Bonin earlier. I mean, you've probably yeah. played him like a hundred times. So yeah. when yeah. you... Maybe when about... You, I don't know. Jay knows. but it's, I bet he does. concluded it's about 400 times. Probably. Wow. That's unreal. So how is the psychology when you're sitting down for the 400th time? Like, how do you decide yeah. what opening to play? Right. Stuff um, like that. <laughs> well, <laughs> um... Are you looking for something new or do you like... Are you trying to probe him somewhere? Like, well, uh... Well... 
Or are you well, just well, always I, the same lines? There was a point in time where I had a very nice streak running against Jay. And, of course, it's not like that anymore. Um, you know, um, he is a very confident, capable player against anybody. So he never backs down from anything. He's a very good positional player, and he is very willing to sacrifice material for some kind of positional activity or, or something rather. Um, a lot of my games against him tend to be at relatively fast time controls because we both play in one-day tournaments. It could be four or five or six rounds in a day or something. If it's a, like, for example, Columbus Day at holiday like that, the Marshall, they'll have a six-rounder. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of fast time control games. Now, about the openings, we have played just about everything against each other. But, of course, I do know, you know, what his main preferences are. And, um, you know, it's 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 just whatever it is. Um, he, he actually sort of plays somewhat quietly in the openings, like, like Magnus, I guess. He's trying to not be overly theoretical in the openings and just get a position and then just see what happens. So I, I think that Carlson sort of has that style or has adopted that, you know, practice of doing that kind of thing. And I think Jay is, you know, especially in recent years, definitely doing that. You know, of course, they still lead to certain positions that I've had against him many times, but... Um, so I'm not really too much worried about the openings against him. Gotcha. And now that you're writing about all these tournaments frequently when you're playing, you mentioned you're also covering the tournament for U.S. Chess Online. So are you able to put that on the side when you're competing? Or are you, do you find yourself looking at the top board while you're playing and like thinking about the storyline and stuff like that? Um, well, a long time ago when I was writing uh, Game of the Month for Chess Life and when I was kind of, um, you know, higher up in the in the rankings in these tournaments, um, the main way in which that would affect me sometimes is sometimes I would literally um, be thinking during my own games as to what I or someone else would say about in the move, you know, which is a very um, distracting thing to think about. It's it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to say, well, if I do this, what kind of, you know, who's going to say what about that? Sometimes you can picture it, but it's, it's not helpful, you know, um, because you can really delude yourself as, as to what's going on. Now, chess commenting, you know, which, of course, I've done, well, I, mean, I haven't. I, I was a commentator at some of the, you know, big, you know, events like the World Championship, along with many other players. But so I'm not really talking about that. But chess writing, a, a lot of it is, um, you know, we have to say, well, this move is whatever it is, but some other move might have been better here. We are constantly finding ways to try to say that in as nice a way as possible. Right. Um, as, a, as a teacher, you have to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I always I tell kids, you know, we're, you know. Um, I don't, I don't want to interrupt myself too many times here, but you know we have to uh, recognize that chess is a is a game where you really get the most out of it when you're constantly picking at things and saying, well, there, there's an alternative here. What about that? And you know, um, but anyway, um, so it's it's distracting to think about what a written comment could be during the course of things. But when I look at other people's games, 
I, I'm looking out of pure interest for the most part, not even thinking about what I might write about them because it's just plain interesting. I tend to be one of those players who likes to watch other games. Um, and when I hear teachers, so this I have a lot of differences with many chess teachers. I hear teachers talking about, you know, giving it the 110%, meaning, okay, sit at the board. They're talking to kids now, you know, sit at the board 110%. Well, I, I don't even like that for two things. One is I, I myself like to watch other people's games while I'm playing. It actually is just interesting. Um, but number two, and probably more importantly, and this is useful advice that came from somebody else a long time ago, is that when it's not your move, it's better to actually relax the brain a little bit. Um, so you can give it 110% if you want when it's your move, and then when it's your opponent's move, I heard people say things like, well, think about general ideas, not moves. Well, because you've already made your decision. You know your opponent has maybe four, five, or six pretty good replies to it. You've already decided before your move that you're going to be okay against all of those different things that could happen now you know all those things could happen, but what's the point of killing yourself trying to figure out exactly what you do against all of them? Because you've already done that right. before your move. Now that it's your opponent's move, maybe it's time to let the brain relax a little bit or even maybe get up from the board and look around. Of course, if you're talking to kids, they have to have some uh, discipline when they do that. But I think it's okay to do that. I personally enjoy doing it. Now, would you say that's equally true even like in action chess or more for classical? Well, yeah, that action chess is a little bit rough um, yeah. for doing that because you, it's a little bit impractical to some degree. Um, I still, you know, peer over at, you know, openings for one thing. I want to, we also want, we want to notice the openings that are going on, just get a general impression of everybody's openings because you never know who you're going to play and, and you can suddenly recall that someone is doing a certain thing and like, oh, okay, that was interesting to note that. Even if you're going to be black against them next round, then white the previous round, they did X, whatever. And that's a little bit of information. So I take information from all sources and just say, okay, let's, you know, it's useful somehow or interesting. You know, maybe not both. I don't know. Okay. And is there anything else with your teaching? You mentioned that you do things differently. Is there, are there other things yeah. that you find yourself doing differently as well? Yeah, there are many things I do differently. Um, well... Um, uh, I, you know, I, all teachers have their own methods. And, and by the way, I always want to say that, um, you know, every good player is fundamentally a good teacher because what it took for them to become a good player was to understand concepts. And surely they'll be able to explain them as well. Now, of course, there are obviously are many other good teachers who might not be as high rated. But let's just be clear on the fact that, that all the good players are also good teachers. And a lot of them, of course, are teachers. So what do I do differently? Um, I, I tend to have little sort of, um, I have, well, with, with regular students, I have certain routines and, and, and um, you know, certain fun routines. I mean, I, I think every teacher has like little nicknames for little things that could happen on the board. Um, so teachers have a certain style and they have certain things that um, if a kid is dealing with multiple teachers because they have a teacher in school and they have a private teacher and then they go to a camp somewhere and hear somebody else, then, okay, they'll be exposed to lots of different ways of describing things or they may remember that the teachers are disagreeing with each other on certain exact positions. But I just have little routines 
Um, but I'll just mention one that I know that uh, Fedorovich really enjoyed this one. I have this little routine where I have this game that I played against somebody, and I refer to um, my opponent. And, and the, my most famous one is the man who forgot to castle. So I, I have this little <laughs> routine where I tell, I show kids this game where my opponent didn't get castled, and there are all kinds of reasons why he didn't get castled, mostly because his bishop was attacked or his knight was attacked or he, whatever. But I just call, I just refer to him as the man who forgot to castle. And then that just became a little routine that my regular students, or if they showed up at some camp that I was at, whenever it comes around, they, they, they're all like, okay, here comes this thing, you know. And then I sort of branched out from that to, you know, the man who grabbed the bee pawn or the man who did whatever whatever thing it was, and just became a little routine that I did for a while until it sort of dropped off and I thought of some other little fun little sort of, I don't know, gimmicky approach to things. So I have a lot of different things like that, but I don't think it's really that different from other teachers where they have their own little sort of routines that, that kids enjoy um, or that I, I think the repetition factor is kind of a useful thing. Um, and it makes it kind of fun when, when kids can anticipate, you know, what's going on and what's going to happen like that. So I have a, and I think everybody has little, you know, idiosyncrasies like that. So Mike, I'm a scholastic teacher as well. And I also find myself with little sayings that I use all the time and it definitely helps. I mean, the kids definitely enjoy it, but as someone who also teaches stronger players, uh, I'm sure like talented young teenagers, do you find yourself, uh, using hooks like that for them as well? Um, yeah, yes, but I think it's a different type of hook. Um, of course, these, if I'm teaching a strong teenager, which I certainly uh, have some strong students like that, and all, you know, typically those are very, very good students, of course. Um, these are very, very smart kids, so we're not going to baby them at all. But in terms of a hook, um, or I guess I'm segueing into a slightly different thing, but what I try to emphasize is I want to see the student absorbing chess culture, not just the analysis of the moves. So the more that the student knows who the other players are or is familiar with other strong players, you know, in, in, who are you know, local to him or international players who he can read about or, or find out about, the better that is. Because it, chess is one of those things you have to immerse yourselves in. You can't just hope to, you know, out-compute the opposition or be better at it somehow than other people. Uh, so a better way is to go in some sort of, you know, I don't know, a 360-degree, you know, th- immersion thing, which involves knowing who the players are, um, kind of knowing what players play, what openings, just as, not because it's itself that important, but because it kind of grounds you as to what's going on unless you, you know, choose your own openings based on that. And then you just get more involved in it. And so I, the hook is more something that refers to other people. Um, a particular thing I like to do with very strong students is take a written article on chess and try to critique it or try to understand what the annotator is saying or try to understand why the annotator included certain things and had no idea what to say about something else. There's always questions in any written chess thing, you know, as to why somebody left something out, they thought it was too obvious, or they don't understand what to say about it, or it's too complicated, or what. So uh, many years ago, I would do this with Robert Burns' New York Times columns, and just 
really try to understand because he had limited space. You know, why why did he pick this thing to talk about? Now, of course, well, I just go to the magazines and there are many, many good uh, article writers, of course. Um, so I, I, I do as much as I can to get a teenager to really feel like they're part of the chess community. And I think that's the best way to go about that. So it sounds like you're drilling them on chess and writing at the same time. Well, I, I make a big deal about writing, I guess. Um, I, you know, um, part of the reason I make a big deal about writing is because I like the thinking process to be accurate. Uh, when I said before that I do things slightly different than other teachers, uh, I'm going to give an example of this. Um, so in this, um, I just thought of this now, but this is one of my... <laughs> I always think about this. There's this amazing game, Adams Torre. Oh yeah, the back rank game. The back rank game from 1923. So whatever we, you know, people say all kinds of things about that game, but what a lot of people don't realize in the middle of that combination, it's suddenly not about the back rank. It's about the fact that when Black tries to unhook his pieces from what White's doing, he finds that he can't do it because he. If he runs away, then he doesn't have a counter threat. It's a very, very unusual position where White is threatening to make a desperado. In other words, White is threatening to not take Black's queen, but play queen takes rook, giving up his own queen, and then taking Black's queen for free. That's the actual threat. He's actually threatening to make a desperado, which is a very, very rare thing in chess. Because desperados come up you know, when you're about to lose a piece and you take a pawn with you, you know, uh, and then you take the other guy's piece. They just come up out of nowhere. But this is a case where White, in the middle of that combination, is threatening to do this desperado, and Black is stuck. He can't get out of it. And that's a very, very unusual thing. So I, I stop the presses, you know, basically, when I'm talking about that position. And I, I, I sometimes say, like, I don't really think you're going to find other teachers saying this because it's just so bizarre. They have to really... Not that they couldn't figure this out, but I'm obsessed with these kinds of what is this concept really about. Um, and that's just an example. So that's where I really – and, you know, some – if I'm telling a class this, some kids will, you know, their I know their eyes will, you know, gloss over or glass over or something and not understand or whatever. But – and then I'll announce that this is a pearl of wisdom, that they have to understand this one thing – and then I'll be satisfied. And so that will be what I'll talk about that. So that's slightly different, of course, from obsessing about the writing. But the, the, the writing business is, is the accurate expression of what's going on. Um, so actually, so <laughs> this is giving me a chance to market what I think I do pretty well, which is some sort of combined chess with some kind of... <laughs> writing exercise i mean i don't know um so but yeah it's pretty different from what most people would talk about with adam's tour well i mean i noticed in your i mean i noticed that you're a good writer just reading your your chess life articles your you your chess online articles i mean obviously i read i read your game of the month column but uh that was many years ago so it's not as fresh in the mind but it definitely strikes me and i, w- I was wondering when i read it so as a sometimes lawyer do you do a lot of like legal briefs? Do you do a lot of writing for your other job? Um, yes. Uh, when I have cases, which is not all the time, but um, last year I did have a 
significant case which involved a lot of writing. Um, well, my client, uh, he was an English teacher, so he thought he could do the writing. Um, I told him he couldn't do this writing. So <laughs> he didn't like that too much. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of writing. Sometimes sometimes there isn't, but it's there is always, uh, you know, in law. Um, one of the good things about law is is the is the battle of ideas is one of the good things you know there are many not so nice things um about a law practice um so if there's an opportunity where it involves thoroughly analyzing something um then one one could say i don't i don't like to go with the whole you know if you can do chess you can do anything routine you know that chess will teach you anything i i try to stay away from saying stuff like that um but anyway yes there sometimes is that kind of thing well now, by I, the way oh no go ahead go ahead ben. okay well this is kind of a different tangent but i mean i worked for you and sophia when i was pretty young in my early 20s and you were a practicing lawyer then and sophia's stock advice to me then was uh do, you know don't go to law school go to business school so uh yeah. I'm somewhat based on, on, I think your experiences. So I'm just curious, like if, uh, if, if you've updated that, if you have other stock advice, because I'm sure you come across, you know, smart young chess players who aren't sure what to do with their lives. So, so do you dispense any professional advice? And, and if so, what do you say? Right. Um, well, I think the issue there is I don't know that they would come to me for advice. Right, um, but yeah, but, but nonetheless, but if they did. Uh, if, yeah, if they did, I would. I think I'd be saying the same thing that Sophia said to you, um, for reasons that are really kind of obscure or whatever. I mean, I think. Well, first of all, I, you know, um, I mean, everything is very, very competitive, uh, but uh, you know, law is a tough business. Um, you know, it works out great for some people. It's a fascinating thing. But, you know, after I stopped uh, working full-time at a law firm that I worked uh, at after I graduated law school, I was there for a number of years. Then I started teaching chess more. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, so uh, oh, I wanted to get back to, uh, you mentioned my, my various columns. Um, in, in the uh, Game of the Month, column which of course had a wide readership so so people would you know um come up to me usually hopefully favorably i thought it was a pretty good column but it was pretty much um okay i can analyze this game there's a you know fantastic i find a fantastic game somewhere analyze it and stuff like that i think more now what i'm trying to do in to extent whatever writing i'm doing uh also at american chess magazine is I'm trying to describe what the tournament really is like or the experience of the tournament within whatever uh, whatever the article is and also included some annotated games. So I'm definitely veered off in that direction. Now, now what really happens, um, uh, you know, when I stopped writing Game of the Month was I, I really kind of felt like I wasn't really competing well with all the other really strong players and very good analysts who were out there who were, you know, using superior computer technology or willing to dive deeper into it. 
and I, I wasn't really producing great product at that point in time. And, um, you know, I just stopped for a while. Um, and this was 2006 that you stopped, right? Yes. And so that was, that was your decision? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. I mean, you know, most things in life, when something, when something, uh, you know, comes about, some change comes about, there's a certain mutuality to the decision-making in some, in some sense. Yeah. There's some writing on the wall. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, but uh, no one, no one was really pushing me around or anything, but I just, I was, well, I, you know, um, it became tougher for me to do it. Um, uh, and I don't know what really happened in recent years that, that made me decide, um, you know, that, that I should delve back into it. Cause it is very hard. I, I did write a couple of books in the late nineties. Uh, they didn't receive, you know, wide sales or readership. Uh, one was, you know, one was on the Sveshnikov, uh, play the Sveshnikov. And then I wrote a book, the great Evans gambit debate, which kind of a funny little book, but it was too thin. Was, so I was all original analysis, but it was too thin. I didn't include the already known theory, you know, so I, I was had, a, you know, that was not a smart move on my part, probably. Um, so when I, after I got great Evans gambit debate published, uh, I ended up in some tournament somewhere, uh, and I was paired against Kaidanov, Gregory Kaidanov, and for some reason, okay, I played E4, he played double king pawn, and I decided to wheel out the Evans gambit because after all, I was the author of that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, much like, for example, you know, Federal, which produced three, three iterations of the Benko Gambit, so nobody should be able to play in a Benko Gambit against him. So, so I played the Evans Gambit against Kaidanov, and I got completely crushed. Hmm. Um, yeah, he, he, you know, he got the two bishops somehow, gave back the pawn, and he just mated me. Um, so I was like, okay, that was very interesting, and forgot about it for a while. But anyway, so about a few weeks ago, uh, I'm in a tournament somewhere. I, me- I mentioned before Chess Sanity. I wrote one of these articles on Chess Life Online, uh, so Wesley Wang is uh, a teenager, a very strong, 2300. He actually played the Evans Gambit against me. I'm thinking, okay, he has no idea that I ever wrote a book on the <laughs> Evans Gambit and uh, because it was written before he was born. But, um, okay, I, I actually did out-theory him, got the better position as black. And then what happened is a typical thing for me. Uh, in recent years where I get these pretty good positions against anybody really could be a very strong GM or a strong master or someone and just wasn't able to win the end game. Um, You know, he actually played very well on defense. Um, So there's a lot of, that's actually a very important feature uh, in recent chess um, is that these good players don't fall apart. Um, You know, okay, they get a bad position. They're fighting hard. And with a lot of understanding as to how to not lose that game, and I've had many, many games against um, young players, maybe twenty-somethings or maybe you know teenagers like seventeen or eighteen-year-olds. Well, Wesley's younger than that, but who just they just don't fall apart, and they end up drawing a lot of these games against me. So, for example, in the World Open this year, um, I had that happen a lot. I actually had that happen a lot in the World Open the year before, um, where 
you know, okay, I have, being very experienced, I have a lot of, you know, somewhat cheap tricks in the opening or can misdirect or get into something. And most of the time, get something pretty okay. And sometimes emerge with the advantage and then just face this really, really stiff resistance, which was not the case, you know, if, if you go back a number of years. So that's, that's a big difference in chess now that I think a lot of people don't really recognize. Um, but I've just had so many games like that. Do you think the kids are being like taught resilience or like why, why are they better at it than previous generations? Um, I, I think it might, um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I want to somehow relate this to, you know, them being able to play chess a lot on the internet and just, um, you know, being through, th- you know, thousands of games where they're just rifling off and just, you know, somehow are, I, I don't know. I don't know. Somehow they have this, uh, um, this will to, you know, you know, by the way, it is one of the great things in chess is to have a bad position and to not lose it. it it's, it really is one of the, you know, you feel really yeah, good. Yeah, for sure. Kind of thing. And, um, in fact, uh, it's almost the mission of a chess player to make the winning player's life as miserable as possible. That should be a goal because that, that sort of equals the same thing. You're just putting up max resistance and then you see the opponent just being like, what is going on here? I can't convert this whole thing. Um, now, whenever I think like that, I always remember this game I had against Schulman uh, in Las Vegas many years ago. I crushed him in the opening. And ends up, okay, I should have maybe been able to put him away, but I emerge into a two-pawn up double rook endgame. But it's completely winning. Only I really couldn't figure out how to make progress. And as I failed to make progress, I could feel Schulman's energy, you know, rising back up. Uh, you know, because he knows he should be losing in that position. Of course, he better than anyone would know how losing that position is. But, um, you know, and then as this dragged on, you know, more strong, you know, players, we could say, you know, proverbial strong, you know, Russian players would come over and be very amused at how bad my endgame technique was. Hmm. And this, this just dragged on forever. It took six hours. I finally did win. Um, and then... And I had a good situation in the tournament, too. But then I just got wiped out in the next round by somebody. I can't remember. But it was just sick. Um, <laughs> but but the point is, if I was on the other end of that thing, um, that is one of the things we have to do is is take the bad position and really work on it. Because you learn so much. You learn so much. You, you have to reject so many continuations. You know, this thing leads to a losing endgame. Okay, what about this? That leads to a different kind of losing endgame. Then what about something else? So that kind of exercise is is really really a, a big deal. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna read you a couple of tweets I came across today. Do you happen to know who uh, Ali Mortazavi is, Mike? Well, I certainly uh, know you know of him. Absolutely. Okay, so he's I don't I don't know that much about him to be honest. He's a, from Great Britain. I looked yeah. up his FIDE rating. He's about twenty three fifty. Yeah, I, th- I think he might have the IM title. And he became a biotech CEO of some point of some sort. So he's been out of chess for a long time. So 
I think he's buddies with Lawrence Trent, so he's been Lawrence Trent has been ribbing him a little bit. Uh, and Ali is playing in Isle of Man, so he right. hasn't he hasn't played a classical tournament for you know however many years, and all of a sudden he's swimming with sharks. So he he had some funny tweets that I could really relate to. So one of them is three stages in the chess opening. Uh, opening, middle game, and end game. My openings are hopelessly out of date. I'm grossly overestimating my middle game positions when checked with a computer after the game, and my end game technique is just non-existent. Apart from that, I'm in good shape. And he also says, well, let me tell you, chess is the hardest job in the world. Chess players are the toughest, most resilient, and motivated people in the world, and they start young. Some of these kids are like elite soldiers at the age of 10. Uh, bio, meaning biotech, is not in the same league, and bio is very tough. I never realized until this week I thought this was the norm because I'd not played from such a young age. It's not. Nothing compares to the pain of this. I'm going back to biotech, much more forgiving. And on and on. But I just, yeah. thought, I just thought it was very funny because I'm someone who, like, I mean, I'm not as good as him to begin with, but I have, like, sort of one foot in, one foot out in terms of competing, and I'm, like, trying to scrap together you know, uh, a repertoire and stuff. And yeah, it's just so hard. Everyone's so good. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I mean, I certainly knew who Ali was a while ago and I didn't really know what was, you know, what was up with him, but, um, kind of, I was playing an Isle of man too, by the way. Yeah. I, I noticed that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I noticed all, a bunch of the Americans were, who were there. Of course, uh, anyone who's following Isle of man, you're following comments probably about uh, Jim Tarjan, yeah, because of the uh, the celebrated win that Tarjan had against uh, Kramnik last year. Um, I remember last year Isle of Man. First of all, Isle of Man is a fun tournament, you know, because well, it's kind of sponsored, I think, by Chess.com and also has a relationship to Poker Stars. Um, it's just a fun tournament. But um, what happened last year? Oh yeah, Magnus played the. Carlson, Carlson, and Karawan were both in the tournament last year, um, you know, because of their schedules, and and they both were, you know, fun. It's rare actually for them to be in open tournaments like that. Um, but anyway, Magnus played the Owens defense against. Um, I can't remember the guy's last name. Sorry about the E, but uh, you know, obviously a grandmaster. So it's one of these, you know, knight f three b six deals. And, uh, well, there's something to be said about that, which is that if you're going to play the Owens defense, it's actually somehow a lot better some, for some reason if white plays knight f3 on move 1 then white could play e4 on move 2. But it's better to do that than if white plays e4 on move 1 and then you play b6. But anyway, when this happened, I was well, watching well, it. Why, why is that? Uh, um, well, Just to educate us. Right. I think, well... On e4, b6, d4, bishop b7, bishop d3, the the things with the distraction things with f5 are, are really not working. Right. Okay. And 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 so black will probably play e6 there, and now white can. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure white can play queen e2 or knight c3 or, or some more aggressive moves. But the problem I think with knight f3. Now, I might not even be remembering this correctly, but but the point is that Magnus played the Owens in sort of a more advantageous way because on knight f3 and then b6 and then e4, bishop b7, we're hitting the e-pawn, you know, and we just keep hitting the e-pawn because white has to play knight c3. If he wants to get his d-pawn to d4, he's got to play knight c3. So then the problem is, you know, black will play e6, and then when white plays d4, black plays bishop b4. 
So he's hitting the e-pawn, okay. and then white plays bishop d3, and then he plays knight f6, and he's hitting the e-pawn again. And then white plays queen e2, and then this I did not know, the strength of d5 in this position. I, I, as, I used to fool around with c5 in that position to get a semi-fake Sicilian or something, but the managers play d5, which is really pretty strong because it kind of, black is just taking over the light squares because of e5, you can just sink the knight on e4. And on pawn takes, which happens, is Elginov. Pavel Elginov was white. And then Magnus played... Oh, Knight. wow. Super strong. Yeah. And then Magnus played Knight XD5. I don't know if anyone's following the position now, but the point is, okay, Magnus played the Owens defense, but he found a, a way to play the Owens defense where it, it's a better Owens defense. But I remember at the time, because I was watching it, and I just posted on Facebook, okay, I really don't like that Magnus is playing the Owens defense, but why don't I like it? Because I had students at the time who played the Owens defense. And I was trying to tell them, don't play this thing. Right. It's not good. And yet Magnus played it. Of course, the way Magnus played it was good. But I was just, the whole point yeah. was lost. And now they're back to, oh, you see, Magnus played it. And in fact, he crushed this guy. Yeah, he also played like one night, night A3 on some chess.com game. Although not, not quite as yeah. serious an environment, but still. Yeah, but doing this against El... And by the way, Elginov really got crushed. So Wow, was, that's just you know, mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, it is inspiring, though. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I've followed a lot of international games lately and sometimes make comments, you know, little posts or something. I, I sometimes post, you know, diagrams on Facebook just for fun. Usually those are my own games. I'm like, okay, what should, you know, what should somebody do in this position? They're They're... Tougher, way tougher positions than the you know mate and three type stuff or something. Um, and and I, usually when I post that, I usually don't even know what the answer is. Um, and if know. anyone listening wants to follow you and promises not to stalk you, are, are they are they allowed to, or is this strictly people you know sort of thing? I mean, I know well, that I don't really, I don't have the, you know, I don't know all the settings about making people followers. Right. Yeah. Me. Thing like second week in a row i've had this conversation i mean with facebook i just assume that if you post something it's being like beamed from the heavens you know but i, yeah. I don't really know either well actually <laughs> i wonder about facebook now sometimes that whether people are even seeing my posts or, or whatever um yeah. but there is a comment i want to make about this that in terms of analysis that well what about just always looking at the computer evaluation for all the positions and i don't like to look at the computer evaluation so much because I'm curious what the evaluation is. And if you look at the, if you, every time you see a move and you just enter it, even on your cell phone on Stockfish or something, and then Stockfish blurts out that it's plus 1.7 for white or like white's just winning or something. I'm not sure how much that helps you unless you're truly doing it as a research function after the fact, after you've already thought, well, okay, so what is this position? But this also gives me an opportunity to mention that I think these computer things, somebody needs to come up with a new thing. I don't mind giving this one away because I could never do this. But those computer things, and also when you watch a, a tournament and you see the bar on the left move so that you now know that the computer thinks that black is up a certain amount or something like that, and the players are just obviously oblivious to that, but, but all the spectators can see that and make comments based on it. But there should be another number, and that number should be the conversion difficulty. I mean, uh, yeah. it's five, but it could be impossible to figure out how it is that that guy's winning, and the computer will still say, it's plus five, it's made in 13, it just is. 
And, well, that's very difficult for a human to know, but most importantly, how difficult it is to get from here to there because there could be grandmasters who won't see that in a tournament game and will just then will suddenly not be plus five at all in the next move. So I think there's uh, someone needs to go out there, and I think designing you know the numbers would be simple enough, but to actually implement it would be very, very difficult. But someone should start coming up with uh, the difficulty factor. Yeah, I got an email from a poker player and chess enthusiast, John Jernigan, about that exact topic, because Karsten um, Hansen, when I had him on, said something tangentially related. And in in poker, it's called realizing your equity, you know, when when you're you're a favorite in the hand, but maybe like – I mean, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds in poker, but there are situations, well, if you have a small pocket pair and hold them, um, you might be a favorite, but you never know when you're ahead. Uh, that's that's the most simple example you can give. So it's very difficult to play the hand and you might make mistakes, even though the computer says you're a favorite, like you have to put a bunch of money in and find out if you win the hand. So it's not practical. And it's the same thing in chess where like you might have some small edge, but if you have to play a bunch of perfect moves, um, that's a, that's a lot less of an edge than uh you know uh s- small but maybe even small smaller control. but reliable edge where you don't have to find the best move every single move yeah uh the the theoretical debates i i guess are similar now by the way in poker i used to read this um sort of this nonsense stuff from david sklansky where he would mention these things but he would never do the deep analysis that 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 modern poker players and modern poker writers have to do to make a really good poker book or poker analysis or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, so those, <laughs> what I worry about with those equities is that if those equities are not realized, it's like they were never there. So right. that really, I don't. You're talking both. chess there, right? I'm talking both. Okay. Talking, you know, but um, in chess. We theorize that the equity is there. If we're winning, we really want to recognize it somehow. Um, we want to force ourselves to recognize it. Um, but by the way, I'm glad you mentioned Karsten because I was thinking uh, I, I was I have a student who uh, was um, and Karsten just mentioned today that one of his books is back on top on Amazon. So congratulations <laughs> on that. But um, one of my students has his book on the dragon, and uh, we were really, really confused about some line that happened where white plays castles long on move nine in the Yugoslav, and then black makes that sacrifice, you know, pawn sacrifice with d5. And we got into some real mess um, on when white can, you know, win the exchange with his dark square bishop and when it's too dangerous because it gives up too many dark squares. And we found the answer in Karsten's book later when we went to the kid's house and looked at it because the kid luckily or by design has all these books that I don't have. Um, so that was really good. I really thought that was a good thing. Um, and I can't believe how he managed to make so many books. Oh, my God. Yeah, he's 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 a machine. He's running marathons. He's writing books. He's working full time. I don't, I don't understand it. Um, yeah. All right, Mike, two more topics if you're up for it. Yeah. Do you have uh, favorite chess books? Well, um, on this topic, I really go back a long way in terms of remembering what got me to be good in the first place. Um, So one of my favorite books is The Art of Attack in Chess, which, of course, is a very old book. Um, And I thought the analysis by, you know, uh, Vladimir Vuksevich was really, really great in that book. Um, 
of course, who knows? People have come up with all kinds of things since then. Um, but it was really, really good. And in fact, when I show people um, the classic bishop sacrifice, which is what was called in that book, although sometimes people call it the Greek gift or something. Right. Um, bishop takes h7 check, followed by knight g5 check. The art of attack in chess has the most scientific analysis of what kinds of positions that will be that will work in. And in fact, I sometimes show these positions, and then this classic bishop sacrifice often happens in a French defense type position where you know the the knight on f there's no knight on f6, so and white has a pawn on e5, and the bishop's on d3, and it takes on h7. So one of the things uh, in art of attack in chess was well, if black's knight is on e7, then when white gets this queen on h5, knight g5 formation, if the knight's there on e7, you don't take the f-pawn. You just play queen h7 check, and then the king was over queen h8 check. The knight has to go to g8, and knight h7, king e7, bishop g5. Now, I know nobody knows what I'm talking about here, but if the knight's on e7, you don't take the f-pawn. But if there's no knight on e7, you take the f-pawn first, the queen h5, x, f7 check, king h8, then come back to h5, then go into h7, h8, and then play queen takes g7 mate. So the point is, this guy had it all worked out. If, if there's a knight there, you do this. If the knight's not there, you do that other thing. Then he had all these factors that went into whether to make the bishop sacrifice. So I just found all that to be amazing. And I read that when I was a kid. So that was really what got me into my original sort of attacking style a little bit. Yeah, and I'm guessing that's... I mean, I read that book as a kid too, and I'm thinking it's like good up to 1600. What do you think? It's... Hard to. I think, I think you can go a little higher than that. Okay. Yeah. Um. um yeah, I also pounded through MCO ten. Uh, yeah, that famously. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just a thing that somehow. So know, MCO is modern chess openings before for for you youngins. Before there were computers, the the way that if you had a question about opening theory, they published these encyclopedias basically. Um, yeah. It was, of course, the later products were better, but MCO10 was there when I was a kid, and um, it was quite good. You know, it had no, just like the ECO, it has no language in it, really, at all, and just has moves. I, I think, uh, for me, uh, mostly it was the Roy Lopez that I was kind of like pounding through. It was kind of like, that was a very clockwork sort of, white attacks the pawn, black defends it, white attacks it again. I love this business in the Steinish defense in the Roy Lopez where every move is an attack or a defense of either E4 or E5. And then, well, yeah, that reminds me of some of the stories that I tell these kids sometimes. Hmm. Um, I don't even know if some of these, I've told these stories so often, I don't know if they're true anymore. Really. Oh, that's the least least important thing. <laughs> but... Uh, like, uh, that Tarish wrote something, he wrote a book, that, um, of course Tarish wrote a book called The Game of Chess, but Tarish, there's a thing called the Tarish Trap, where he beat this guy, uh, Mises, or someone like that, uh, in the Steiner's Defense of Royal Lopez, where Tarish would go around saying, well, black can never play E5, X, D4, because it gives up the little center, so you can't do it. You gotta hold that pawn forever in the Royal Lopez, and just keep it there. But it turns out that black can't do that in this variation because if he does that, white gets to exchange a million pieces, then take the e-pawn, and then and then come back and skewer black eventually on the e-file. And that's, I think it's known as the Tarish trap. But I don't really know that Tarish deliberately 
you know, wrote something to get Mises to follow this line and, and then sprung a trap on him. But my other favorite story with kids is that I tell them that Christopher Columbus was a chess player and he was from Italy and he learned to play Bishop C4 from guys like Greco. But when <laughs> he got to Spain, he uh, Roy Lopez told him, you can't put the bishop on C4, it has to go to B5. And, um, okay, so he started doing that. He started asking, you know, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand for the money for the ships, and they weren't interested. And so Christopher Columbus left, and then Roy Lopez, you know, got on a horse and went to find him and said, okay, the King Ferdinand is challenging you now. If you beat him in a game of chess, you'll get the money for the ships. So I, I... deem that Christopher Columbus is the you know link between the Italian and the Spanish openings somehow. Huh. So is that is that true about Christopher Columbus? No, I, I don't know if any of that is true. <laughs> okay. But I just like to teach a little his, fake history. Sometimes. Yeah, okay. At least get them thinking, yeah. Yeah. Okay, last topic, Mike. When we were talking before we recorded, you, you mentioned you did have some stories about... Or you said you don't have a lot of stories, but you... You you did play some strong players over the years. So who are the most noteworthy or memorable players you've played? Well, I mean, easily the most memorable player that I've ever played is Boris Spassky. I played him in the 1987 New York Open. Um, I'm pretty sure I played him in the third round of that tournament. Uh, I was I was um, I was white. He 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 played. It was a Roy Lopez actually, and he played some kind of Berlin defense, but not the usual thing. He played bishop e7 at a moment in time when black usually plays knight d6 in that Berlin defense Mm -hmm. thing. After white has played d4, so white plays d4 in that position, black usually plays knight d6. He played bishop e7. Now, I knew what bishop e7 was, you know, from my MCO10 days, and I remember seeing it, you know, somewhere. So I I, I knew to play queen e2 in that position. And then he did some things that I really wasn't familiar with, you know, and and it ended up being a draw. Um, And then basically, so, uh, by the way, I made a Grandmaster Norm in that tournament in the 87 New York Open. The New York Open is where I played a lot of great players. uh, Eventually, in the series of tournaments, I played Smyslov, Portish, um, some other very famous European Grandmasters. Um, You know, but, but so in this game... Oh, yeah. So after the game, Dmitry Gurevich, you know, runs up to me and says, you know, people will really respect you now. You, you drew with Boris Spassky. Uh, that was really, you know, special. Okay. And then, and then I, so I ended up playing a bunch of other good players in that tournament. But a couple of days later, Spassky shows up and he's got his tennis uniform on. Uh, clearly, he's ready to play tennis. And and he was paired against Fedorovich, as it happens. And, okay, so their game was a draw also. And then Spassky ran off to play tennis. And then I said to Garbage, okay, so, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, how much respect did I really earn? Or, <laughs> right, yeah. Just you're, being silly, but, you know. Yeah, you, you had to work for your draw. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. It was just funny. But, um, <laughs> that is funny. I mean, and quite an honor to play him. I mean, I remember those New York Arnhem open tournaments that like you know four, 13 or whatever 13 year old judith polgar came to those yeah, yeah um, absolutely yeah one of the best my best game at one what my most famous game ever is 1992 against susan polgar it was kind of a king hunt game 
Okay, and it, I think that Soltis put it in one of his lists of best games and stuff like that. It was really a good game, and you know, um, by the end of the game, you know, Zhuja, well, she knew she was losing. She started moving faster and faster. Her king had traveled from e8, went out to you know g6, crossed the board, ended up on a3, and eventually I managed to find a checkmate. Um, okay, so of course she was very nice about it and everything. Well, she was trying to move fast to get me in time pressure. She got me in time pressure, but I I, I managed to not get flustered and, and get the checkmate. But as soon as the game ended, uh, Judith, this was in New York, 1992, Judith comes up and says to Susan that, you know, she had a better defense, whatever. And, of course, Judith was completely right about that. <laughs> right, of um, course. And at the time, I was thinking, well, that doesn't really look so great over there. The king retreats and goes into a little huddle. and just kind of It's kind of like a boxer putting their arms on on top of their head so that they can't be, you know, they're getting pummeled, but they you can't land a big blow and stuff like that. That's what the position looked like. But actually, of course, you know, really black would have been perfectly fine if that had happened. Um, so that was interesting, you know. Um, and then I lost to Judith in that tournament. Oh, well, at least you got to play her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, so she would have been, you said 92, so she would have been, what, 16 or something? Yeah, I guess so. I'm, I'm not sure. But, the you know, the three of them, of course, came to New York Open multiple times. Many uh, great players came to New York Open, um, you know. So that that was good that so many players came there. Cool. All right. Well, Mike, I feel like um, you you've given us adequate stories. You might have a few more, but uh, but we'll save them for another time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Ben. All right. Uh, if anyone wants to reach you, is is your information available, like on Chess dot com or Facebook or whatever? Um, I don't really know if my information is available. I guess they can find me if they really want to. Um, I guess we'll just leave it at that. I mean, okay. They can track you down. Sounds they can good. They track me down, yeah. All it's right. It's not hard. It's not, it's not too hard. You know, one time I told, uh, I ran into, by accident, an ex-governor of New York State on the subway, um, David Patterson. I just, oh, yeah. The yeah. blind guy. Yeah. Yeah. I told him, like, I, you know, I, I just started talking to him and I didn't know who he was and someone else told me, you know, sort of motioned at me like I'm talking to a famous person or something. But eventually I started talking to him and then I told and then I asked him something of, you know, uh, he said who he was and this and that. And then I, I just said, well, I, you know, I'm Michael Rode and you can go down to the Marshall Chess Club and find me there. Right. So it'll be the simplest way of tracking me down. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Wait there. Come Thursday night, basically. Yeah. Say, say hi to you and Jay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, Mike, thanks so much. I know it's a, it's a late night, so I really appreciate it. OK. Thanks a lot, Ben. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. That includes Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music, Matthew Passy, my esteemed producer, and everyone who's written a good review on Apple Podcasts or other podcast platforms or told a friend about the show. Every little bit helps. But of course, I'm most indebted to those who donate to support the show. Without you guys, the show would not be possible. And I want to give special thanks to my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual Partners. Here are your names. I'm slowly but surely correcting some mispronunciations. So let's see how I do this time. Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Ali Morchetti, Andres Crisdwa, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans. I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Chabri, Christopher Wood, 
I am Christoph Zelicki, a.k.a. Chess Explain, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel D. Schaefer, Daniel Vine-E, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Agard, James Banastia, Jason Woolham, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Leo Delgado, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passi, Macaulay Peterson of the Full English Breakfast, Matthew Tedesco, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, Ryan Stone, Steiner Lima, Stuart Katz, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouge, Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks a lot, everyone. Catch you guys soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.